This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Another great guest today. This one's an interesting one. He's not one of my, my bread and butter uh, mobile home park owner operators. He's, he's even more. He's, he's the founding president of Rock USA, Rock USA that's R-U-C USA. Please help me welcome my guest. Paul Bradley. Paul, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you so much, Fred. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear your hear more of your story and for our audience to hear your story because you've got a unique one and you've got a, a little niche here in the MHP world that not many other people are playing in that space in the same way you are. So tell us a little bit about more your background and then we'll get into how you got into MHP and how you how how you got involved with Rock and what you guys do. Well, I first stepped into a mobile home park uh, as a young professional at the ripe age of 24, and it was uh, 1988. Uh, began working for an organization in New Hampshire called the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, uh, and was helping homeowners purchase their communities as co-ops. Uh, and uh, really, since the age of 24, it's something I've been extremely passionate about. And as you can see from uh, my image, I'm a lot older than that today. <laughs> well, great. Well, tell us, tell us more. So you, have you been doing that ever since? I know, because that sounds very similar to what you do now at Rock. If you've been, is that, tell me how you went from that job and then you into what you have built today. And I want to hear more about, you know, the size and scale you guys have. I follow you guys on social media. So I know you are having a big impact uh, all over the country, but maybe tell us how, how you, that leap from where you were uh, to not where you are today. Yeah. So in, in, when I joined in 1988, uh, we had uh, just uh, nine co-op communities in New Hampshire. And uh, over the course of whatever it was, 20 years or so, we grew that to uh, 88 communities that were resident owned in New Hampshire. At the time, about 22% uh, market share. And you know, I went from a uh, young staffer to vice president of the community loan fund. I had uh, expanded into a new development. Uh, we developed a 44 site community also developed a nine site community um, uh, during that time. Uh, also added a, a housing finance program to finance homes in these resident-owned communities. And so really had a sort of a trifecta, you know, all the key elements uh, that one needs to be successful or really to help co-ops be successful, right? A, help them buy their communities and, and uh, support them through their ownership phase. Uh, provide access to single family financing or chattel financing as people in the industry would, would refer to it, uh, and access to new homes for both infill and, and community expansion. Um, and really operated that uh, uh, through 2008. Uh, and it was in, earlier in two, the year, you know, 2004, five, I began looking at, well, how would we scale the resident ownership piece across the country? Um, did a little stint at uh, Harvard and and uh, launched Rock USA in uh, May of 2008, uh, four months before uh, you know President Bush was on TV talking about world financial systems collapse, um, and 
we've been on the on the path ever since. Wow, interesting, interesting. So, how many how many communities? I want to, I want to talk about how many you have, but and you're involved with, but also maybe for our audience, maybe explain a little bit more about the difference between you know regular mobile home parks. I think we all kind of get if I own the park and you guys either own your house and then you pay me lot rent, or I own the house and you pay home rent, which which has lot rent built in. That's kind of the normal space. And then like in my house, you know, where I sit, there's an HOA. So there's there's bylaws or covenants, easements, restrictions that are part that run with the land, run with the title. So so for example, I can't have two sheds in my yard. I can have one shed. I can't have I can't park a boat in my driveway for more than 24 hours. <laughs> rules like that. Similar rules are in the leasing guidelines or rules and regs in a, in a regular mobile home park. In your case, with the co-op, explain those differences how people actually have the ownership. And then I know we're going to get into a lot and I know what you guys do is how do they have the leadership and just the managerial acumen to, to run a community um, and or do they do it themselves? Do they outsource it? And what's your role in all of that in your organization? So that, that's what I'd really like to get a right. better understanding of. And then also we'll talk about how, how you guys pitch it to, pitch it to your, your audience and how, how, how these things are financed. And I'm, you know, and lots of, I follow this stuff in the news of you guys. So I kind of feel like I got a good feel, but I've never even been in a resident owned community. Um, one of yours or another one. So I'm, I'm a little uh, uh, ignorant of what, it, what it's like. Great. Well, we've got a terrific one just north of you there in Liberty, Missouri, a uh, longtime owner who wanted to sell to the homeowners. Uh, and we began working with them. Which one, uh, which one is that? If you can say it's Liberty landing. Oh, I know yeah. that one. Yeah, I think I tried to buy that. I think I think I remember remembering this. Because, I'm not surprised. A lot yeah, of people did. <laughs> it's a nice park. Yeah, it's a very nice park. I met the community owner about a decade ago uh, at an MHI trade show, and so she's had in her mind for some time wanting to sell to the sell the community to the homeowners, uh, and it was the right time in 2021 uh, for her to do that. And we, we completed that transaction with her and the co-op in, in December. Uh, but, uh, so we're happy to get you up there for, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, uh, uh, boiled down, you know, essentially what the homeowners are doing in these, in these co-op cases is forming a corporation, a cooperative corporation, uh, maybe a membership nonprofit in some States, but regardless, it's a corporation that's, uh, owned by the homeowners on a one member, one share basis. So every home, every owner occupied home can buy a single share and have one vote in the co-op's activities. Um, and essentially the uh, residence co corporation is buying the land from the commercial investor, the seller. Um, and in a very, uh, for, for the seller, a typical transaction. Uh, it's, it's a sale from one community owner to another. Uh, all the same uh, due diligence, all the same uh, financing activities taking place in that process, and uh, simply the co-op is taking taking ownership of the land. Um, our piece of that is twofold. One, uh, helping the homeowners form that co-op. Obviously, they engage local council uh, to, to represent their corporation, uh, but we help them through the process of putting that together, putting the membership together, educating the membership, uh, helping that organization prepare for taking ownership. And then we also facilitate and help them through the due diligence process, uh, leveraging, you know, engineering support, uh, appraisals and, and legal counsel. Um, 
that's on the organizational development side. And then we provide financing to these co-op corporations. Uh, so we're able to provide the financing uh, that gets the deal closed. And that- So the, fin the financing for the, like the debt for the acquisition? Exactly. So I'm yeah. curious, how are you guys able to do that just from your own in investor pool? Or are you guys are, are originating loans and introducing them to Fannie Mae or to Bank of America or someone else to make a, make a loan? It uh, happens both ways. Uh, our objective is to bring the best possible financing for that resident-owned community to the table. So we have a national uh, organization uh, called Rock USA Capital, and that is a community development financial institution. It's actually certified by the U.S. Department of Treasury uh, for, for the purpose of providing financing in low-income communities. Uh, and our mission is solely focused on financing resident-owned communities. Uh, so uh, so it's, an, it's a CDFI. There are 1,400 CDFIs in the country. I'm familiar um, with them. I'm familiar with them because it's, right. it's, it's through new, like new markets tax credits related to that. Those are a lot of in Kansas City. There's one that I know the guy that runs it. So yeah, I'm familiar. So okay, so you're so you, you have a you have a financial arm that is a government approved entity, and you have a certain requirement that obviously is in line with your mission, and it's financing for low income communities. Exactly. Yep. And okay. uh, so we're able to show up. Uh, and the value proposition to the community owner, the seller, the investor is. Uh, you know, they can sell to the homeowners, there's expert assistance through the process, and there's readily available financing. And that's, that was really the significant uh, innovation uh, that we began scaling in 2008. Um, resident ownership around the country did exist, you know, in Florida, California, smattering of places, but no one had tried to scale it. Um, and no one uh, had previously organized the capital in advance of individual transactions. Um, so we, we organized the financial institution so that the capital is readily available. And that's why we're helping co-ops close on their communities in you know, standard commercial timeframes, 90 to 120 days. Um, because we recognize most community owners aren't interested in what had been the history of this, you know, in some states taking six months to a year or longer. To, for the homeowners right. to secure financing. Because when you're out chasing around for banks, et cetera, uh, it takes a lot of time. Uh, so we organize that capital all up front and have it readily available. That's good. Now that's definitely helpful because that was, that was the knock I heard on selling to the residents was it's, it, what if they don't get financed and it's slower and all that kind of stuff. So if, you, if it's not the case with you guys, that's awesome. Um, what, about the, what about the equity? Um, you know, if, if I'm thinking if a standard transaction is 25% equity, who's putting that up? Is you guys get 100% finance or is there some sort of charitable grant? You have investors or because presumably in a lot of communities, the residents aren't ready to pony their money together and put up 25% down. Or are Perhaps, they? Uh, they're not. Uh, and, and we specifically work in low income communities. Uh, you know, the majority of mobile home parks in the country are, are occupied largely by low-income families and, and households. So that's no surprise to any of your listeners. Uh, no, we're showing up uh, with 110% LTV debt financing, Ferd. Wow. Not available to you. Yeah. So, okay, give, me your, uh, <laughs> give me your phone number. We're going to do more business than I thought. <laughs> so in effect, we're providing fixed rate debt in what would be the equity tranche for your typical 
you know, acquisition. And we do that because you know, our purpose is to help low-income homeowners buy the land under their homes and secure that as an affordable community. Um, you know, and, and obviously the capital that we're raising, you know, from banks and foundations, insurance companies and the like is for that, for that social and economic purpose, right. To help low-income people gain security. So, um, and, you know, remarkably, uh, that has been incredibly successful. We have not had any, uh, co-ops, uh, default on that. Um, we've not had any co-ops resell their communities back uh, to the market. Um, now, your, your listeners will be savvy enough to know that there have been co-ops that have sold back to, the, to uh, commercial owners. Uh, in Florida, that's happening. It's happening right now. Um, but those are market rate co-ops uh, versus these limited equity co-ops that we're forming. So this is a little bit down in the weeds, but in a market rate co-op, it's the scenario you alluded to. Each member comes up with 25%, uh, the membership comes up with 25% equity through the sale of shares. And those shares are 10 or 20 or $50,000 a piece. Um, and what's happening, of course, is those shares have appreciated as the communities right. appreciated. And so there's now some incentive to sell those properties. Limited equity co-ops, you know, uh, membership shares cost $250, $500, and they don't appreciate, and they don't get, uh, there's no profit motive to sell the land in limited equity co-ops. So that's why you see these are secured long-term as affordable uh, communities. Homes still sell in the marketplace for what people sure. would sell as fair market value, but the land is secure long-term. And that's really the purpose here. Let's have secure long-term communities because we're going to need these on a go-forward basis, right? We need- Yeah, I mean, looking from the outside, tell me if this is accurate as to what part of your mission is, but I, I see it and I think part of the mission of your organization is to make sure that the low-income people that live in the communities don't get priced out by new private equity guys buying the park and jacking the rent up. You got it. You know, number one fear of homeowners uh, is escalating rents. Um, and uh, so they're highly motivated to gain security uh, to avoid that. The other risk that, uh, of course, they walk around with a pit in their stomachs is community closure, uh, redevelopment. Um, and, you know, at this, at this stage of the game, homeowners know those risks. Uh, they've seen enough of it uh, over the years. Uh, the group in Liberty, Missouri, you know, talked about their 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 motivation for purchasing their property was a result of seeing some aggressive buyers purchasing other communities in their area, and so when they had the opportunity, they jumped on it. Right. So, how I'm curious how how does lot rent work after ROC after Rock buys or through the group buys it? And presumably, they're still paying quote HOA dues in order to maintain the property and service the debt. Is, is there something like inflation adjusted rent increases or is it fixed forever or does the board determine that? Because I, I mean, I, if, if I can see this as a defensive move of the residents, like, look, we don't want the rents to double. So let's agree to buy it ourselves and we'll just do 6% a year and we control our own destiny. But it's not a free lunch where we just, cool, now we own it. There's no, we never have to write a check again. Yeah, no, no, no free lunches. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Uh, but they increase their, their site fees uh, based on increasing costs. So if, if property taxes rise or uh, trash uh, increases, and 
you know, so what, so those are set by the membership in their annual budgeting process to be specific. So as costs rise, they, they raise their uh, site fees. Um, what we've documented is co-ops in, in Rock USA Capital's portfolio, because that's where we have the best data. Uh, they're increasing their site fees at just under 1% per year on average. Um, and latest, what I've read on the industry side is, is uh, annual increases of about 3.9% uh, nationally uh, for site those fee both, those both Those both are lower than what I would have guessed. Yeah, I, I uh, well, I know with great confidence that uh, the, the co-op site fee increases is 0.9%. I, I don't, I, I read various things on the industry side, but that's, uh, that's the MHI stat on that, um, that I, and data, and I think it's rooted in data comp data. So. Okay. No, it's probably, I, mean, I don't know of a better source. I don't either. <laughs> MHI slash data comp for that. It just feels light 3.9. Um, I mean, frankly, in places like Oregon, where there's rent control, I think you're allowed 7% on top of inflation. So it's like, even in rent control areas, rents are going up more than 3.9%. Right. Um, right. Interesting. I think I have, a, I have an idea that I just thought of that could potentially be self-serving for, for me and other community owners, but I think would definitely be potentially self be beneficial to your guys' group. You mentioned property taxes going up. I think the biggest expense in mobile home parks, you know, generally, it depends on the park, it could be management if you need a full-time manager, but in general, it's water sewer if you don't have the residents paying it. And the other one and the biggest unknown when you acquire is property taxes. Mm-hmm. It depends on the state, obviously, but um, you know, if you're buying a deal, I'm, I'm actually doing a tax appeal this morning on um, one of our parks. You know, you, you buy a deal for a million, it's on the books for 200,000, it might be reappraised at a million. And that's going to really kick your budget in the stomach if you didn't budget it. And or when you, your valuation, when you, let's say your taxes go up by $10,000 at a 10 cap, it's 100 grand in valuation. At a five cap, it's 200 grand in valuation. Immediate kick in the stomach. That's something that. I probably understand better than your resident-owned residents. Um, obviously, you guys will have seen that and have people help uh, supervise and, and educate them on that. What I just thought of, you know, I used to be a county appraiser, mm. and in Missouri, there are three classes, three classifications of real estate, residential, commercial, and agricultural. And the assessment ratio is uh, 19, 12, and 32, meaning the commercial people pay almost three times for, the, for a million dollar farm, you pay all about a third of what you'd pay for a million dollar um, commercial building. And that was the Missouri legislature way back when, it may have been the constitution in Missouri, way back when determined that we, we like farmers. Farmers farm half the year, they were, they were legislators in our half the year. They made laws that were farmer friendly. It's possible mm-hmm. that there's a legislature out there, perhaps in Connecticut, that is low income resident friendly and you could lobby them to create a new classification for, for tax appraisal for manufactured housing communities. And if you, if you were able to do that, that would be helpful for you and me. It's possible you could also do it for residential, for manufactured housing communities owned by the residents, which mm-hmm. is probably, it's probably an easier pitch to your legislature. Um, but there's so many, I used to work in government for five years too, there are so many programs to help people some of them are like legitimate some of them are just somebody got to go to the ribbon cutting and get the credit for it um i don't know which one this would fall into in local legislature but 
I could see I could see you pulling that off. Is in, is getting a different, if not a different assessment ratio, some form of other. Like with Fannie Mae, I did I did three Fannie Mae refis last year on my parks, and um, I, I agreed to the tenant site lease protections on all three mm-hmm. because among other things, I got a better interest rate, mm-hmm. and they gave me I think it was up to fifteen thousand of my third party reports reimbursed, so I got an extra fifteen grand three times. Um, and the government gave me that as an inducement for me to be nicer to residents and given these tenants these protections. That's right. Starting in 2022, I think they're required across the board. You know, you don't have the discretion, um, but I chose to do it anyway. So with that type of thing in mind, it might it might behoove you to uh, look for a government grant program. Maybe you've already thought of this, and because you're a CDFI, you you automatically have credibility as opposed to you know me going to some legislature you're like this is our mission and and you can presumably you have a case you're going to have a case today you said so thus far nobody's defaulted but the first time you default is when liberty landings property taxes are reappraised at fifty thousand higher mm. and and now your residents are choking on it well that's right the thing uh uh and and i can't say this hasn't happened uh because the co-ops themselves you know, think of think of a 300 home community here. Uh, that's a lot of voters in that town. And so we absolutely have had co-ops that have shown up at town meeting or select board meetings um, and uh, and argued their case. Uh, I can't cite a, a tax uh, assessment, you know, writ large change uh, in policy. But uh, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of sensitivity to uh, you know, 400 voters in a community. Uh, <laughs> right. right. We have we have co-ops. We have co-ops in in Halifax, Massachusetts. The co-op represents about 50 percent of the town's voters. I think. Wow. So yeah, there's a there's a so they've got some you know they've got some political sway that you wouldn't as a as an individual right. owner investor, right? Um, right. So that definitely has its various implications. I would say. All right, cool. Well, yeah. sorry, I got us on a tangent, but nope. uh, something, I thought, something I thought of. Um, so anyway, we're, we're, you're telling me, I think you've, you've, you've given me a good explanation of, I think, the, the cost structure for the residents, the process, the benefit um, to the residents. I think it's pretty clear. Tell me how you guys, you know, in this case in Liberty, you, you, talk, you spoke to the seller, this woman. How do you normally initiate these? Like I, like I have, if I have a community here in, in Kansas City, do you come to me? Do mm-hmm. you go to my residence? Um, what's the what's the impetus for this? And then and the, is the is the value proposition to me as the seller that I get to be nice and sell to my residence, or are you guys paying market price, or even perhaps over market price? And then I'm also curious because depending on that answer, um, what's the minimums? You know, you, would you guys do a twenty pad park, or do you need to be at a hundred, or do you need to be at two hundred? And then what is right. your guys' role? after the grave or if you will after after the closing to know that my residents don't run the place into the ground great great all great questions for it so first off uh we start with the community owner um no property is acquired if there's not a willing seller who's interested in selling at this point in time uh to this particular buyer so we're not organizing homeowners we're not stepping into communities uh, without the community owner's permission and without uh, an agreement about what the price terms and conditions of a possible sale to the residents is. 
So, um, so that's why you see us at trade shows. That's why we, uh, you know, know people like you in the business. Um, and it really is a upfront assessment. You know, is this a good candidate for resident ownership to your question about size? Uh, it really varies by market. Um, you know, we have a couple of different ways we do this. We have uh, a network of, of, uh, nonprofit affiliates in some States. Some of them would undertake a 20 site community, uh, if it was close to their office, you know, just outside of Olympia, Washington, or outside of Portland, Oregon, uh, or outside of Missoula, Montana. Uh, and so there are places where that would be, uh, right. Uh, we also have a national team that goes in uh, called our Rock USA Direct team. That's who supported the group up in Liberty. Uh, Liberty's 185 site community. But when we're bringing the national team in from a distance and we've got people all over the country, uh, you know, we're looking for larger properties um, in that case. Um, and it's and that is a pretty um, good indication of the some of the motivations. Uh, this is done at fair market value. Uh, you, I will never uh, promote purchasing properties at a premium, um, you know, but we're attuned to the market and are very good at uh, valuation. And, uh, and so our, our purpose is to help co-ops acquire at market value on commercial timeframes. That's our commitment to the, to the industry uh, and to the homeowners. Um, and it's how we will be successful over time is really meeting seller expectations uh, for sale. And yeah, for a lot of sellers, uh, there's the added, the added, uh, you know, doing well by and doing good. Um, you know, the, the, the legacy in case of the, the seller up in Liberty, that was a 40 year, you know, that was a 40 year development by that family. Um, right. And they wanted to sell to the homeowners. Uh, she had it. I, rem I remember the story now. I remember you do. <laughs> broker Bob was working on it. Right? Bob's like, she wants to sell to her residence. And <laughs> at one point, I think I was going to buy half. And because I was, I was gonna like, let me buy half. You'll still own the park with me, but I'll do the work. And, you know, and, and, and never, it didn't get very far. So yeah. guys like you, you, you ruined it for me, but good for you and good for the residence. <laughs> not that I would have been bad to the residents. No. Means, but, um, no, and they're hey, look, man, there are a lot of good operators in in the business. Um, absolutely, you know, I have uh, come to come to uh, have a lot of friends in the business, and come to respect a lot of uh, a lot of business people in the business um, that really are providing uh, affordable housing and secure affordable home ownership around the country. Uh, but what everybody recognizes, there's a risk at the point of the transfer, um, and and I you know I had a uh, an operator uh, about six months ago telling me he had had sold to a to a colleague of his, somebody who had a lot of respect for, and and the guy promised him that he would not raise the site fees beyond a hundred dollars over the first two years, and um, and the guy went right back on his word as soon as the deal closed, and he felt like he sold the homeowners down the the path. That was a deal we were negotiating on, um, and actually had. Had uh, he told me later we were slightly north price-wise than than his buddy, but because he had a relationship with the guy, he said uh, you know he took him at his took him at word and and uh, sold him the deal um, and won't do that again. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So you know it's that it's at that point of transfer where the where the 
the risks. I used to say back in back in the days when I was doing a lot of work in communities, homeowners, uh, you know, when the back in the day it was uh, black Cadillacs for whatever reason in this neck of the woods. When they started driving through the community, homeowners knew something was up. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think I think the type of car changes over time, but yeah, uh, I don't probably. Know is, I actually have a black Cadillac. I have <laughs> a black Cadillac. I, I drive a truck normally, but I, my grandma, when she passed, I bought the her black Cadillac from the estate um, to, to get to, to like take it on road trips and stuff. But now I'm letting one of my managers use it because his car is not working, so he's using the Cadillac the last month or so. But I have a black. <laughs> it's old, but I mean, I'm, I'm too young to drive a Cadillac, but um, it's just, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> funny. Okay, so let's say I got a I got a hundred space park. We both mm-hmm. agree it's worth five million dollars, and I say, all right, Paul, I'm willing to sell it to my residents for five million dollars and through you guys. What next? When do you how do you, when do you bring the residents in, and or what confidentiality do I have? what's what is your normal close rate because my one of my fears would be my residents don't know that my park's worth five million dollars and once they find out it's it's worth five million dollars they're pissed and they don't pay me rent anymore and maybe they want to buy the park but if they don't if they don't close am i do i know i have a worse work-life balance because i got a bunch of frustrated Mm -hmm. residents yeah that's a very common fear uh so you know, a lot of people have that in mind. Uh, the close rate is north of, of 95%. The two reasons why deals uh, fall apart, uh, one, uh, mis- misrepresented financials, uh, and particularly misrepresented receivables, um, you know, sloppy bookkeeping, bad bookkeeping that just doesn't stand up when you get, when you get through it. Your initial assessment based on what you provided, you know, the thing, uh, papers, uh, out, but uh, then you get into it and it all falls apart. So that's that we've had that experience a couple of times. And then um, undisclosed significant infrastructure issues. You know, um, we all know what's on, un- you have a good working understanding of what's underground in your communities. Let's just have a forthright conversation right up front. Um, and let's knock those two big risks out of the water. Um, so good financial uh, assessment and good understanding of what's underground. We're still going to have the engineers come in and do a property conditions report. That's standard, but, uh, but we can get out in front of uh, big issues uh, if we know them. Um, because otherwise, then uh, it is a matter of putting a viable opportunity in front of the homeowners. And the other thing we're, we're doing in that upfront confidential assessment with you is assessing the viability of this as a resident-owned community. And we're very good at this. We've been doing this for over 38 years. Uh, I have been at this for a long, long time, personally. And uh, so we're very good at understanding uh, if what's a viable opportunity. So and, I'm curious on that one, what what that looks like, that analysis? I mean, is it something as, as si- simple as a ratio of park-owned homes versus tenant-owned homes? Or, and, and or, or do you actually meet the people to assess, you know, these people have the incomes or is there any leaders? Is it crime statistics? Is it demographics of any sort? Um, market analysis, all the above. I'm just curious what, because I, you know, if I, if I've, I've just, I've agreed, I want to sell it to my residents for 5 million. It's a fair price for me. I feel like I'm doing good because I'm protecting them from these mm-hmm. big mean private equity shops. All right, Paul, let's do it. But then you tell me my residents aren't good enough are not viable enough 
how, how do you, you, it's a letdown for me. So yeah. what is your, what is your, what is your analysis based on? Yeah. It's a and variety. Would you tell me that? Would you tell me that? Or would you just be like, sorry, for we're not interested. Or would you tell me like, look, you got X problem and we're not going to do it. Right. Right. Um, it's, it's uh, in terms of individual resident underwriting, we are not in the, uh, we are not underwriting individual residents on a credit basis. So right. we're using, we're using uh, rent collection data as the, as the sort of underwriting criteria, if you will, for individual members. So obviously if, if receivables are through the roof, we've got a problem right up front. We're not going, we're not going in, you're not going forward. Uh, you know, let's just be clear. Um, but uh, in terms of capabilities of, of the homeowners themselves, I have worked in very low income communities and uh, moderate income communities. Uh, the capacity within communities is there. Um, and we're very good at helping groups get formed and supporting them through the process if it's a viable opportunity. Um, and that just comes back to the initial evaluation with the seller, make sure that there's this good economics here and what we're putting in front of the homeowners for them to ultimately decide makes, makes good sense. Um, and so in the case of in the case of, let's just say Missouri, you know, that's our Rock USA direct team. That's Angela Romeo, who a lot of people in the business know. Angela's been at this for 10 years. Um, she, she runs the estimate of value and runs through all the, the, the initial assessment of the community. One thing we do look at is, you know, what are houses selling for in the community? Um, you know, if it's a community of five and $10,000 homes and, uh, and, you know, significant challenges uh, on the house qu housing quality side, that's going to be, that's probably an indication of significant challenges uh, to organize a co-op. The higher, there's a positive correlation between the value of the homes and people's motivation to buy the land. So the more valuable sure. the homes, the higher the motivation to buy. Um, but you can't bring, you can't bring your upper middle class uh, mindset and economics to that. Um, you know, a $25,000 or $30,000 home to a low income family is a very valuable asset. Um, sure. And so there's a lot of motivation, even at that price level. Okay, no, that makes sense. Yeah. All and right. and uh, to your question about park owned versus owner occupied, resident ownership works when it's owner occupied. So we're looking for a high percentage of owner occupied homes. Uh, we do ha have some some latitude on park owned. Uh, and recognize our strategy there is to convert those to owner-occupied uh, soon after the closing if, if, uh, if they are included in the deal. What's a high percentage in your mind then? Is it, is it like north 80%? Of, yeah, north of 75% owner-occupied. Uh, okay. we, we draw a hard line at 75%. Got it. Yeah. What about um, vacant lots? Do you buy parks that are 60% occupied from a, from a lot standpoint? Yeah, 60 is tough, um, you know, uh, for a whole host of reasons. And in the business today, you know, it, it, you know, not that many years ago, you've been at this long enough, not that many years ago, you weren't paying for vacant sites. Nobody right. was. Um, right. You're now paying for vacant sites. So, um, so no, co-ops uh, co are much better off with uh, more highly occupied communities you know, 10%, 15%, maybe, but, um, you know, for some infill, but not significant lifts, like a 40% lift. Uh, that's, that's beyond uh, the business model. Kind of. No, that's great stuff. 
Yeah. What other what other stuff are we missing, Paul, that we haven't covered on this? I feel like I've asked most of the questions that come off the top of my head. Uh, well, one thing that uh, one thing a lot of uh, sellers are curious about is uh, you know who pays for all the due diligence right up front. You know, it's a group of low income homeowners. How do, how does that get done within in a commercially reasonable time? So here again, this is not a product available to you, Ferd, but um, uh, we provide a forgivable due diligence loan right up front. Um, our objective is for uh, these homeowners to organize a co-op, uh, have legal counsel, have access to all the standard due diligence so they can make an informed decision to purchase. Uh, but also we recognize we're working in the commercial market. So we provide a forgivable due diligence loan that's repaid if they go on to purchase the community. But if they were to choose not to, uh, we write that off. Um, and how often has that happened? Uh, uh, I think our loss rate is like 3% on uh, due diligence loans. Um, oh. And it's usually, um, as I indicated earlier, that property conditions report. Um, do, sure. Did we go into it with our eyes wide open? Did we know what we're, we were gonna find? Or are we surprised and it and it blows the thing up? Got it. Now, how, and how do you guys get paid? Presumably, you guys get management, you get some sort of asset management fees or commissions or or or, or interest for some of the loans you are in the middle of, you know, or or by being a virtual CDI, do you do you have government funding of some form? No, we're uh, this is a no. We are paid uh, one at closing, a closing fee. Um, to support the, the transaction. And then uh, it's through interest earnings on the financing uh, that we generate our ongoing earnings. Um, that interest earnings also pays not just for the financing, but also for ongoing training and education, uh, access to our leadership program and our leadership institute. Uh, we're highly focused on helping co-op boards and members get the leadership development that they need. It's the same as what you would provide in your firm you know, how you're providing ongoing uh, development, staff development opportunities, right? Um, and so we're very, uh, we spend more, we spend uh, the bulk of the resources here at Rock USA on ongoing training and education. That's where uh, the biggest piece of our budget goes. Yeah, and that's cool. That's yeah. Good yeah, because you want people to be successful. You know, uh, I'm a big believer. You, you do not work uh, and help low-income people uh, purchase their communities if you're not committed and, and sufficiently funded to, uh, to stand shoulder to shoulder with them for the for, forevermore. You know, this is a long-term partnership. Yeah, so then the, the last is the last kind of step in the process is after you talk to me, you do the due diligence with the, with the community residents, they then take some sort of vote. And then if they get to vote, somebody is the HOA president and signs the loan docs. Or yeah. signs the signs the signs the closing docs. Oh yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, got great great uh, quotes and pictures and videos of this. You know, you're talking about, well, uh, Debbie Winowitz down in Halifax, Massachusetts, former police dispatcher. Uh, you know, she uh, has has signed a twenty nine million dollar mortgage. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty, awesome. Pretty remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, man. Cool. What else? Anything else you wanted to share before we jump, Paul? Any other last comments? And if and if not, or let us know where we can find you as well, so people can reach out to you. 
Yeah, people can reach us on uh, rocusa.org. It's rocusa.org, no hyphen, uh, and it is a .org, not a .com. Uh, feel free to reach out. Um, uh, Angela Romeo is, uh, is a national contact a lot of people know, uh, and of course, people can always reach me. Uh, everybody at Rock USA is uh, first initial, last name, no period or anything, and uh, at rocusa.org. Uh, but feel free to uh, to reach out. We can put put that out in any manner. Um, and we we have a lot of conversations with uh, with community owners, and it's all done on a confidential basis. Even if it's something you're thinking about or curious about for years down the road, we've got we've got long memories, and we're we're patient. Uh, we're patient <laughs> people. So uh, if it's if anyone's interested or curious, happy to talk to anybody. All right. Sounds good, Paul. Appreciate it. Thank you for appreciate the time. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.